there is no real Godfather's Guide to Life. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darby. For this episode, we watched The White Lotus and asked Glenn Kenny, have we reached the salad days of the patriarchy? Lori, are you cringing or are you binging? Layla, this week I am binging and I am binging the object that is best known as Lazy Susans. So it is the holiday times. I have too many things in my house and too much food to be trying to prepare and sauces and condiments to store and put out and put in. And I really find Lazy Susans to be an amazing solution to all of this. You can put them in your cupboards, you can put them on your tables, but most importantly, and this is the true binge part, I recently have discovered for myself that you can also put them in your fridge. Think about it. (laughs) What are you binging or cringing this week, Layla? I just want to endorse your binge. And say, <laughs> also, shout out to Chinese restaurants, early adopters. Hey, there you go. I am binging the show Alaska Daily, which I'm watching on Hulu, but I think is on ABC. And it stars Hilary Swank. It is not for everyone. It is yet another series about journalism, which I know people always shit on and, and call boring. But I am a sucker for the earnest journalist story. I will watch anything that centers a newsroom. And so in this series, Hillary Swank plays a disgraced New York Times reporter who sent off to work at a local paper in Alaska. And the entire series is an ode to the local paper dying under the thumb of of chain newspapers and the death of news in America. And the central theme of the series is deep reporting on missing and murdered indigenous women, not a topic you see covered Uh, often, let alone on network TV. It's a little corny. It's ABC. It hits you over the head. It makes every point. It makes it again. And then it reminds you that it made it. But if you, like me, love a, a reporter, then it's for you. Love that recommendation. Thank you. It really ties well to the show that we are discussing today because this is a sly, slick, extremely well written show, but I would not say it is subtle. So today we are discussing HBO's The White Lotus, and specifically we're talking about season two, episode three, Bull Elephants. And the show revolves around the guests and staff of a high-end resort chain known as the White Lotus. And we are talking about season two. So season one also centered on the same high-end resort chain, but in a different location. So season one was based in Hawaii and season two is in Italy. And if the first season was uh, really getting into issues around race and class, this season has really centered masculinity. So we follow three generations of an Italian-American family, and there's a lot to dig into there about their relationships with women, all three generations. Uh, We also learn about a pair of friends from college. One has hit it big as a tech entrepreneur, and another is in finance and tech, and their wives, and as well as an heiress and her husband, the heiress being played by the inimitable Jennifer Coolidge, who is 
is the only cast member who has come with us from season one into season two. Yes. And to discuss this show, we broke our nearly 30 episode streak of not platforming white cis hat men. But we found the perfect person to break that streak with. And that is our friend Glenn Kenny, the renowned film critic whose work you may have read in the New York Times on RogerEbert.com, who was the film critic for Premiere for many years. He's also the author of the book Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, which is an incredibly researched account of Martin Scorsese's masterpiece, The Goodfellas, and how it was made, for which he did a lot of in-depth interviewing of many of the actors, producers, directors, people who were involved in the making of that film, including Michael Imperioli, who plays the father on this show and was the very memorable character of Spider in Goodfellas. So we got firsthand account, a film expert to help us break down this episode. We watched season two, episode three, which is called Bull Elephants, an episode that includes a lot of film references, which is why we called a film critic. So without further ado, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Cringe Watchers. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on to Cringe Watchers to dissect the White Lotus. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making me watch television, series television. This is a good one. They used to say back in the day, it's not TV, it's HBO. That was the slogan back in the day. You both may have been too young. To no, I, re- I remember. remember. I remember. It's not TV, it's HBO. Home box office. And I just wanted to watch all the taxi cab confessionals. It was considered very prestige, even though it was not actually prestige. You know, so many of the shows that we look upon as prestige were made in order to uh, satisfy the first directive of HBO at the time, which was, uh, or, you know, to give something to the boys, which meant having shows with nudity. If you wonder why every episode of The Sopranos in the first season took place at the Bada Bing, that's why. You know, no, I'm not even making this up. It was all about boobies. It was all boobies. <laughs> boobies, boobies, well, boobies, boobies, boobies. The show that we want to talk about, is, it has some boobies. But it, it does. Not the episode I saw. Well, maybe a little toward the end when the prostitutes were trying to seduce the one guy who was into it and the other guy who wasn't into it. There was some nudity but there wasn't a whole lot of nudity in this episode not i'm I'm not saying that because i was disappointed i feel like we should apologize glenn no no it's fine (laughs) if i want nudity i know where to find it (laughs) so does that character i mean well that's true yeah 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 the reason that we called you in renowned film critic to discuss television is because this episode of the white lotus includes a lot of references to uh famous very male movies Mm. and uh we felt a little out of our depth and so we're grateful to have you here and not to put the weight of all film criticism on you but a lot of references here and i'm sure you caught more than we did i found it quite interesting too because i had heard a lot about the white lotus and it was one of those things that you know supposedly has the satirical edge or satirical bent to it and you know the first season you'd read people saying uh how will the 1% survive the skewering they endure at the hand of the White Lotus? You know, which is very in keeping with what you're seeing this year with certain movies. Uh, the Menu, for example, about high-end restauranting, Triangle of Sadness, all the positive reviews for those movies. And 
I like the menu slightly better than I like Triangle of Sadness, but I think, you know, ultimately they're both actually bad. I'm sure there are periods in history and in literature where satire has been effective, but I think we're living in a fairly satire-resistant age right now. But the thing about this episode of The White Lotus that I was kind of taken aback by, and not in a bad way, was that, you know, it wasn't all that skewery. You know, it's hmm. not like... It is, yeah. a, it's kind of a conventional television series where you're expected to have some sort of, if not empathy, at least a slight affinity for some of the characters to the extent that you give a shit what happens to them. And you're not looking to see them all, you know, dying in a fire. I know you watched this episode to talk to us, but you should know that the very opening episode of this season foreshadows that a bunch of these guests die. We don't know oh. which ones. And we accept that probably not Daphne because she's in the opening scene. We wanted to frame this conversation by setting up a couple of the scenes in this episode and to get your reactions Certainly. to some of the themes that come Certainly. out. And so I think we have to start with The Godfather. So the yes. first scene that we want to discuss is the DeGrasso family, which is three generations of an Italian-American family who've come to Sicily in part because the grandfather of the family wants to rediscover his Sicilian roots. His son and grandson are often embarrassed by him because he just says whatever he thinks and his ideas about flirting and women are verge on today's definitions of harassment. He's got no filter. He's sort of a crass grandfather. Then the father, his son, the middle generation, Dominic, we already have seen arrange with first one and then two sex workers to accompany him for the week. And we know that he is on vacation without his wife or his daughter because none of the women in his family are speaking to him because he's been uh, serially cheating on his wife. His son, Albie, the third generation in this family, seems to have a lot of pent up anger about his dad and his dad's treatment of women, but he has come along. And so he's set up kind of as a nice guy and the meek one. But the first scene that we see them all come together in earnest in this episode, they're visiting the locations where scenes from The Godfather were filmed in Sicily. And you get a little repartee between the youngest de Grasso and his older generations where he sort of skewers the patriarchy. Men love The Godfather because they feel emasculated by modern society. It's a fantasy about a time when they could go out and solve all their problems with violence and sleep with every woman and then come home to their wife who doesn't ask them any questions and makes them possible. Hey, hey, hey. It's a normal male fantasy. No, movies like that socialize men into having that fantasy. He's brought along a friend he's made at the hotel, Portia, who's a personal yes. assistant to someone else. And she's sort of used as the woman foil to this male family, pointing out that the scene that was filmed where they're having lunch is a woman just getting blown up. That was her contribution to The Godfather. I mean, first question is, why is men love The Godfather a trope? Is it true? A lot of the commentary about this episode uh, cites Tom Hanks in uh, You've Got Mail talking about how there's a Godfather quote for every scenario. The Godfather is a sort of cut and paste metaphor for all things male. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there? the Godfather guide to life idea, which is kind of, I mean, you can't blame a work of art for having dumb followers. I mean, you kind of can <laughs> to a certain extent, but you also kind of can't because it's all a matter of how it's kind of filtered. The thing about You've Got Mail and the Tom Hanks idea is, you know, You've Got Mail was written by Nora Ephron and directed by Nora Ephron. And, you know, Nora Ephron's husband was Nick Pileggi, who wrote Wise Guy, the true life story of Henry Hill, which was made into the film Goodfellas. 
And Nora Ephron enjoyed being around mob people even more than Nick Pileggi did. She actually wrote <laughs> two movies about mob people, uh, one of which was actually based on Henry Hill, literally based on Henry Hill. Henry Hill is the Ray Liotta character, right? Henry Hill is the Ray Liotta character. And Goodfellas, he's the Steve Martin character in My Blue Heaven. She loved these characters. She also liked to poke fun. So she liked to poke fun at people like the Tom Hanks character in You've Got Mail, kind of not getting, you know, why it's kind of not really a great thing to say that there's a Godfather quote that applies to every situation in life. There is no real Godfather's guide to life. The thing about the scene in The White Lotus they go to Sicily, they go to that, you know, estate that has the house on it, that has the car, that Apollonia, the bride of Michael Corleone, is accidentally blown up in, a, in an explosion that was meant to take his life. Albie, the third generation of DeGrasso's, who really does, you know, style himself as a sensitive soul, the kind you really have to watch out for, I think. A lot of people but, think. Because in sure. the beginning <laughs> of the episode, there's like last week on The White Lotus, and he's talking to Portia, played by Haley Lou Richardson who in my early notes I referred to as the Florence Pugh lookalike. But now, yes, was, totally. He is. But he says to her, I seem to be attracted to pretty broken birds. And, you know, Ugh. he definitely means that, but also get the fuck out of here. Can I say that? Yeah, like, just, absolutely. Just, just fucking puke. So even if he's not aware of how egregiously awful he sounds trying to impress her, he's definitely trying to impress her. And he makes the speech at that table he's very much trying to impress her and he again he may think that he's being sincere but he's he's definitely overreaching he's condemning his father and his grandfather says well you guys just love this fantasy of mobsterism which is you know you do whatever you want you sleep with as many different women as you want men love the godfather because they feel emasculated by modern society and there's a kernel of truth to that i mean the you know one of the things about Goodfellas is that it's kind of an exploration of men's attraction to the gangster lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's it's laid out more explicitly in Goodfellas because all the things he uh, that Albie talks about in his little speech are done by the guys in Goodfellas, not so much as they're they're done by the guys in The Godfather. But it is hmm. about why are you fascinated by gangsters because of transgression, and I don't mean transgression in the fashionable leftist aesthetic rebellion sense. I mean transgression is, as in getting away with shit. Men like to get away with shit. Men, actually, anybody, not just men, but men <laughs> who are moral, will you know go against their morality for a certain kind of thrill. This is why people do drugs. I don't think it's immoral to do recreational drugs, but you know there is a point where your morality does enter into it and you're either thrilled by transgressing the morality or you just don't care because uh, okay. you're an addict or whatever the problem is. But when Scorsese made Goodfellas, you know, he was recollecting watching the 1933 film Scarface and him and his buddy Jay Cox would watch it. And there are these scenes, these guys just acting like animals, you know, saying, hey, they got Tommy guns. Let's get us some Tommy guns. Hey, but 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 And they're laughing and they're thinking. But then Scorsese is like, why do we like these guys? Why do we like this guy? And Goodfellas is kind of a exploration of that. Why do we like these guys? The Godfather, on the other hand, is more a story of an established order coming out of a tradition that, you know, was born in Sicily. And then it's about the erosion of that established order. Depending on how you look at it, The Godfather is one of two stories. It's the story of a venerable Don in the United States, an Italian immigrant who's built up an incredibly powerful position in organized crime, who then loses that position. 
because he won't change with the times or whatever it is that he won't do. You can look at it as about a story of loss of power, or you can look at it as the story of the son who, you know, resists getting involved in what the family does. But after his father is, you know, almost assassinated, he becomes his fiercest defender and then becomes an even more ruthless criminal than the father figure to the extent that he kills his brother-in-law in the first mm-hmm. film. In the second film, he ki- he has his own brother killed. That's a pretty heavy thing, having your own brother killed. If you actually watch these movies and absorb the stories they're telling, these are not male fantasies. You know, hmm. I'd like to be powerful enough to kill my brother. I mean, it's not a tragedy because these are not moral people to begin with. And in order to enact a tragedy, you need bad things happening to people with, you know, good qualities. But what it is, is it's also about capitalism. It's about American business. It's about how American crime hides itself as American business, which is not a subject matter that's going away anytime soon. So, you know, for this little twerp to be saying, well, it's just like the most basic of male fantasies. There's not even, you know, what sex is there in The Godfather? There's there's Sonny having sex with one of the bridesmaids. And his wife doesn't just sit back and take it. She's not happy about it. Have either of you read the book, The Godfather? No. No. Well, I wouldn't recommend it. The point you were making about Alvy pointing his finger at his father and grandfather and the hypocrisy there, I think is a plot line that the show is brewing because in the subsequent episode, uh, just uh, huge spoiler alerts on this show, Alvy ends up entangled with Lucia, the sex worker. And there is in a subsequent episode, multiple conversations where Albie is pretty open with his father and grandfather that he needs to go take out money to pay an escort and says that neither of them can judge him for it. Mm -hmm. And then later, Dominic and Nano, the father, we should also mention that Dominic is played by Michael Imperioli, who is in Goodfellas, uh, which I had forgotten until I read your book. A crucial early role that opened a lot of doors for him with slightly more than uh, Martin Scorsese, but still. Yeah, but still, I think of him as the guy from The Sopranos. But in a later episode of The White Lotus, the character of Dominic says to his father, you never taught me how to be intimate with a woman. I know you were with escorts. You made my mother's life miserable. You never taught me how to. I did the same thing. Right. When he mentions the, and, when he mentions you know, the fantasy of sleeping with around with different women, he's not. You can argue that he's not really referring to the Godfather so much. He's just trying to stick it to his dad. Right, exactly. But then, but then later, yeah. his dad sticks it to the dad's dad. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. setting up this multi generations of men. Like the grandfather character has this very nostalgic, rose colored glasses view of Sicily and family and history mm-hmm. and and the women who loved them. But none of these women are there, maybe because they've either driven them to the grave or insulted them. That's kind of what I wanted to ask both of you about because you know, Glenn, you mentioned the legacy of HBO at the top of this conversation. And this show is a very popular, modern, you know, prestige show on HBO. It is so loved. And people are obsessed with it. And you know, this new season was very, it is very highly regarded, and it was highly anticipated. I wonder from both of you how surprising it is that they chose this reference, this film reference, which strikes me as, you know, not particularly modern. It's not particularly relevant. There's nothing about The Godfather that is in the news right now that makes it relevant. And there's a lot of other 
conversations about masculinity that the show could have chosen to engage, right? We hear a lot about, you know, the incels or involuntary celibate men and boys of this generation. And we hear a lot about the impact that the internet has, right? These are the the modern reference points. When I think about The Godfather, I think about my uncle, shout out Uncle Ross, when I was like, probably 10 years old, I remember he came to me and he really wanted to imprint this on me, that he had made a supercut of The Godfather that took all of the scenes and put them in chronological order. And that's what he wanted me to watch. You know, he was so passionate about this series of movies. And, you know, he's loved him to death. He's in his 50s now. You know, in many ways, this is this old stylized idea of masculinity that I don't even know if you had asked me before I watched the show, I would have put in my top 50 list of things impacting or influencing masculinity today. So I'm kind of curious from both of you, what you think about the choice of the show, which has the attention of, you know, so many modern, really young audiences as well to go back to it and to pick it up and what they might be trying to say with that. I think those Godfather tours are actually real. So I would expect that a guy like Mike White, the series creator and and writer-director, would certainly, having created a tri-generational group of Italian-American men, it seems like a pretty logical kind of place to go. And also it's true that, you know, in most old-school pizza parlors across the nation, you'll still see a picture (laughs) of Marlon Brando and the Corleone boys on the wall somewhere, you know? Or a pie called The Godfather, or a sandwich (laughs) called The Godfather. So you feel like the legacy. There used to be Godfather pizza in the village. The legacy lives on. And if you're in Sicily, and I mean, Sicily is still known as the birthplace of the mafia, which was, you know, a very different organization when it began than it eventually became. It was a more political, anti-government kind of organization that, you know, tried to bring, you know, representation to the people. The actual history of the mafia is so weird and convoluted and fascinating. And the way it mutated into the thing, the corrupt criminal enterprise it became is fascinating too. But, you know, the Godfather treats a particular point in time of that organization. And and then the Godfather part two obviously goes back to Sicily. It yeah. makes some really interesting stuff relative to the patriarchy, the hierarchy of the patriarchy mm. in Sicilian society. Italian society more than as much all all European societies are are largely based in, in patriarchal hierarchies, but Sicilian Italian specifically. You know, what's interesting in the Godfather films is not so much that women are not present, but how they're infantilized to a certain extent, how they're both, you know, revered as the mother of the children, but also Mm -hmm. dismissed as being completely uh, irrelevant to any other enterprise that the men are involved in, which makes the situation with Michael Corleone, you know, it could be seen as actually kind of an error. You don't know in The Godfather when Michael is, you know, in Sicily with Apollonia, what he's going to do. Does he intend to bring Apollonia back to the United States? Does he intend to stay in Sicily? The explosion happens and Portia's character is a little tasteless, maybe. I don't know. It just, you know, it, it logically in terms of a storyline, it makes kind of sense, but it sort of forces Michael's hand to a certain extent, because that's the point where he decides to go back to America. And then he decides he's going to pursue his American love, this wasp, Kay, and marry her and make her the mother of 
his children, which relative to the job he has to take on, turns out to be a rather bad mistake. Right. In this scenario, I mean, to, to your question, Lori, why are we bringing up this old movie? I think, Glenn, your point that the Godfather is a stand in for the capital P patriarchy is right. Before we leave this scene, I don't want to skip over the fact that towards the end of the episode, Dominic and Albie have a sort of exchange in, in the hallway of when they're back at the White Lotus, where Albie is, is calling his father out for his treatment of his of Albie's mother and saying, like, you can't just fix this. And in his own defense, the Dominic character calls himself a feminist and says that he respects yeah. him. I feel like you have this wrong, distorted impression of me. I have always supported women. I've always promoted women. I'm a feminist. I mean, I didn't marry some subservient wife. Your mother's a brilliant, amazing woman. That's where the satire comes in or semi-satire, because I could see a guy like this saying that in real life. But I mean, do do all men think they're feminists? I think that's become kind of the lingua franca. It's become common parlance of male hypocrisy to say, no, I'm a feminist <laughs> because I believe in sex workers. It's almost like a reflexive thing and it just always comes out poorly. Yeah. And I'd be remiss, you know, not to mention that it's totally possible to be a feminist and use sex workers, in my opinion. I'm sure lots of folks have different feelings about that. But based on what we see in this television show, he is polite to these sex workers. He pays them well and in a timely manner. He grants them access to his fancy hotel. And of course, you know, there's no violence or other kinds of mistreatment or abuse that we see by his hands. So by those kinds of measures, you know, Who's to say that might not be an appropriate label, but of course, we know that um, he's let down the women in his life through betrayal and dishonesty. And maybe that's, it's another conversation for another day. If you can be no, a he feminist and a it's cheater. Clear, it's clear he <laughs> can't live up, he can't or won't live up to his commitments, you know, so he seems an extremely weak-willed guy. I'll satisfy my urges and then I'll feel really bad about it, you know, right. it's kind of a counterproductive way of living if you ask me, but you know. Totally. I do think the dialogue in this show is so good and so kind of accurate. You know, my partner, I watched the show with my partner and I often cringe at how accurate some of the depictions were, and that line was one of them. But we want to talk to you, Glenn, about a second scenario in the show that we want to get your thoughts on. We want to go to another group of White Lotus guests. They went to college together, and now they are vacationing in Italy with their wives, Harper and Daphne. This, of course, is Aubrey Plaza's grand show. She's getting a lot of critical praise for this role for her. I can't call it a breakout role. She's kind of beloved already, but folks are really loving her performance. And basically, she's done so much great work in film recently. And I particularly recommend the film uh, Emily the Criminal, which is a really fascinating movie and a really terrific performance by Plaza. But, you know, she's Ooh. mostly known for her television work and her television work on Parks and Rec where she plays this character of uh, exceptional snarkiness. And here, <laughs> her character is a lot, is not that, which is interesting. Yes. It's kind of like vulnerable and befuddled and kind of not sure how to be. And also rightfully suspicious of Cameron and uh, what's her nut? Uh, Absolutely. And one thing that she missed, Glenn, in the previous episodes is that she is a lawyer by day who works with folks impacted 
from the Me Too movement. So she is a defender in her day job of people who have been um, sexually mistreated, which, is, you know, I feel like they're they play with that a bit, not so much in this episode, but in other episodes. But what we really are curious about and want to talk to both of you about, of course, is this little day trip which turns into an overnight trip that these women go on. So Daphne arranges a day trip to Nomo and drags Harper along through some passive aggressive, very gendered <laughs> trapping techniques and that I would never want to be on the other side of. And Daphne has then, when we, they arrive, she has rented a villa and has planned all along for an overnight trip. And all of this is just to play with her husband and make him jealous. So the women get high and Daphne explains to Harper that she and her husband both play these little games and she discusses a known instance of her husband cheating at least once. But she also says that she should not be viewed as a victim and she gives a speech, which um, we want to definitely talk to you about, about lonely male elephants being turned out of the herd. I need to be a man, honestly. Just be so lonely. I mean, they're so competitive. It's like, can they even be friends with each other? Cameron and I went on a safari. And um, on safari, you see all these pods of elephants, and they're all, like, bathing in the river and playing with each other. And it's so sweet, but it's just the moms and the babies. Because when the boy elephants get too big, they kick them out of the pod. And then the bull elephant has to, like, wander through the jungle by himself for the rest of his life. And we're meant to take away from this that she feels bad for men and the trappings of masculinity and um, the ways in which that they are denied social community and to play. And Men in can't the... really be friends with each other because of so much competition. Exactly. Exactly. So we really want to dig into this with you, Glenn. Then there's the intercutting with the evening between Cameron and, and Ethan where you know, it, it becomes clearer that Cameron is really kind of wants to cozy up to Ethan to, to get something out of him. Their beautiful collegiate friendship, which is culminating in uh, overnight broing out, is really a transactional one or a potentially transactional one. So, yeah. What I really kind of got out of those two scenes was that both Daphne and uh, Cameron were in their own ways trying to draw Ethan and Harper into their separate webs of corruption. I think it's a good demonstration of the way that women have somewhat stronger characters than men because Ethan, even though he does not succumb to the blandishments of the sex workers, is still very kind of uh, milk toasty about it. Like, eh, should I or shouldn't I? I don't know. Whereas Harper is kind of, she's too polite to be overtly repelled but, you know, she maintains a position of deep suspicion throughout. And yeah, the episode is actually titled Bull Elephants. In these instances, we see that uh, Cameron is definitely the, the more bullish of the two. I've seen this dynamic played out a lot over popular culture, even to a certain extent in the, in the rather odious hangover movies. It's sort of like, no, come on, it'll be great sort of thing. What can I say? It doesn't speak to my experience anymore. I'm sober 13 years. So nobody saying to me, no, come on, it'll be great. No, I've done it. And it wasn't great. I was never a broy guy to begin with. One of the things I find interesting about this episode and this show is that it takes you along for a ride. From the moment you meet Cameron, 
you know that you're not supposed to like him. He's slick. He's turning on Harper's spidey sense. You know, he's going to ask for money. You know, he's going to do bad things. You know, he's going to provoke. Yeah, you don't like him. What I find really interesting about this episode is first Albie and then Ethan are the nice guys. And in this episode in particular, I think there's a real turning point in the series where you're starting to see the cracks. I'm starting to ask myself, are they the heroes? And I can't remember if it's this episode or earlier, but we already know that Ethan likes porn and we already know that Ethan likes video games. And to me, that harkens conservative Republicans saying the death of the American man and masculinity in America. Uh, They're all watching porn and playing video games and spending too much time online and not interacting in the real world. And what happened, you know, wherefore masculinity. And I think that that's not by accident. The show isn't that subtle. And we're starting to see, especially when, you know, in, in this episode, Cameron is the instigator. They end up with Lucia and Mia at their table. They, uh, Cameron ends up convincing Ethan to bring sex workers back to their adjoining rooms. Cameron is the one who has sex with the sex worker, but Ethan watches. And I think the show is pushing us to say, what would the nice guy do? Ethan's way of turning down the experience is so mealy mouth that he might as well have gone along with it. You know, especially considering the difficulties that he's having in his marriage. It's no coincidence that the episode begins with Aubrey Plaza in a yellow negligee spraying herself with a, you know, what she considers an alluring eau de toilette and remarking to her husband, well, you're always so horny after you go for a run. And even though he's not horny now, sort of like, you know, and I don't want to sound too much like a typical cis heterosexual male here, but, you know, a man who is tired of Aubrey Plaza is tired of life. So, you know, Ethan's got, <laughs> that, Ethan's might be, got, that might be a pull quote. Ethan's got a serious issue here regarding his own masculinity and, and its sexual practices thereof. And, uh, you know, there's no solution in sight in this episode because um, he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. And he's not with his very attractive wife. So. I'm sure, yeah, that there's going to be a lot more uh, in terms of twists coming down the road. Oh, there are. You should keep watching because this is uh, there is a delicious turn. And Aubrey Plaza is a tour de force in the episode that follows this one. Episode four. Yeah. Episode we've no, done actually five. Episode four and five. Uh, you, yeah, know, well, episode you know, they're four. in my they're in my queue now. Once yeah. you watch something on so, HBO Max, it says, well, now watch this. Well, episode four, she finds a condom wrapper. And she spends a lot of time stewing. But then episode five, she's ready to burn it all down. And then you see why they cast her in this role. Before we leave the women, uh, another reason we called in a professional film critic is this big ode to La Ventura, where the next day the women are walking through, I think, the very same square Mm-hmm. from yeah. this famous film, which I didn't recognize, but I was watching with Chris and he said, this is a famous it looks, scene. It looks different in color. So in this scene, Daphne and Aubrey Plaza are walking through a piazza and mm-hmm. there's a slow-mo effect where you see kind of time stop and men leering at Aubrey Plaza from every corner. Yes. And it's uh, maybe a contrast to her husband. It's definitely the whole theme of this girl's trip is male attention and lack of male attention. But yeah, why do you she, think it, that scene? There, it's a weird scene because, yeah, it is a homage to La Ventura. I, I forget who is the actress. In, in La Ventura, Monica Vitti is with a character played by Gabrielle D'Annunzio, I think his name is. And they're looking for his disappeared girlfriend, who is the best friend of Monica Vitti. 
And um, they end up, you know, traipsing around these islands and end up here at the end. And there's a, uh, the thing about being in Italy as a woman is you, men will look at you. It's just Rome particularly is is pretty bad about this sort of thing. Oh, but, I remember um, going to Rome at, at 13 and constantly begging my little sister to sit on my lap on buses because the men would just lean over. And also when you're in Europe, the cat calls can get physical. Yeah, no. And I mean, this isn't something that director Michelangelo Antonioni found to be uh, an acceptable practice. He condemned it. But there's a bit in the piazza where there's a kind of a a relatively notorious woman of the evening. And I think she's played by Dorothea Di Pololo. And her name is Gloria Perkins. I could be getting this wrong. And she's like followed around by all these men. But she's, you know, kind of like a combination starlet prostitute and uh, she ends up sleeping with the Gabrielle D'Annunzio character who betrays Monica Vitti for her and and she's kind of the center of attention that was a very compelling scene because you're not quite sure you know it's credible enough relative to the reality of male catcalling in Italy but it's also clearly you know played up to have this certain unreality that's then broken when Daphne comes back. It's a pretty nicely done, nicely turned homage that you don't necessarily expect to see in this series. So it kind of comes as a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Laurie, what did you think of that moment? Yeah, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the film, but it definitely, you know, was interesting and felt like accurate to my experiences traveling, not just in Italy, but in many places. My hope for this entire series is that they are centering and commenting on masculinity in order to shed light on something different and <laughs> in order to perhaps more subtly but more interestingly center women's experiences and center women audience members. And this was one of those moments for me that did that. And I also thought it showed the two worldviews of the women really well because only Aubrey Plaza is impacted by these men when Daphne kind of walks away to go to the ATM. She's the one who kind of feels and experiences men with this suspicion and with this kind of almost horrorful tone. And Daphne is light and seems to just float above it all and kind of fundamentally doesn't view men in, in this onerous way. And so I thought that it was cool that it sort of played all these different roles in character development, which as you both have mentioned, this show does really, really well, and it pays off over time. So that was kind of my experience knowing nothing about the film itself. And Glenn, you're making me want to go back and, and watch that and, and revisit it because it sounds like there's a lot there. I should correct myself too, because the actor is Gabrielle Ferzetti. And the thing about this scene is that it's an exact, almost an exact inversion. The White Lotus scene is an exact inversion of the scene in the film, because Gabriel Ferzetti as Sandro is meeting a guy, a journalist who wrote about the disappearance, and the meeting is interrupted by the arrival of this 19-year-old, a supposed starlet who just turns out to be a very high-end prostitute named Gloria Perkins, who's followed by these, you know, ravenous, feral wolfmen out of a Tex Avery cartoon in, set in Italy, and she's basking in the attention. Whereas Aubrey Plaza's character in The White Lotus is much more like Claudia, the Monica Vitti character 
in La Ventura who's just sort of like confused and upset and rocked by everything. It's not just a homage to La Ventura, but a kind of a a switch on the point, the ultimate point of that scene in La Ventura. So I give give a lot of film buff credit to Mike White there. Laurie, do you want to do another scene? Yeah, let's do one more. I mean, we got to do Jennifer Coolidge. We can't talk about this show and not talk about Jennifer Coolidge and Glenn. She's the only character that follows from the first seasons. Layla, do you want to set this one up? So Jennifer Coolidge plays the character of Tanya, who, as Laurie said, is the only character who made it out of the White Lotus Maui and is a frequent guest of the what we now know as the White Lotus chain and has come to Sicily. And she's come with her husband, who we saw her meet, her husband, Greg, in the first series. And when she met him, it was a hookup fling at a hotel and he thought he was dying. And we now know that Uh, having married her and her money, she's paid for expensive medical treatments and he's going to live. And lo and behold, he doesn't seem that interested in his wacky wife anymore. And he's making mysterious calls in the bathroom. And at the beginning of this episode, we see him taking off leaving for what he says is a couple of days, which is bizarre to leave an expensive luxury resort retreat for a week and leave for a couple of days. And in a desperate attempt to get him to stay, Tanya offers to let him out of his prenup. I feel like that if you really love me, you wouldn't leave. I have to. Is it the prenup? Is that why you want to? Is it because I have the prenup? I can get rid of the prenup. We can talk about that when I get back. So you see that there's a real financial relationship here. What do you guys make of prenups in the modern age? Never had cause to ever think of it. Um, you know, the character of Tanya is an interesting one. She's sort of the comic relief. She's an independently wealthy woman who has an assistant and in some ways is a power figure, but she also seems so hopelessly dependent on the opinion of others that she doesn't come off as a strong character. It's an interesting play. I don't know, Lori, if you also have thoughts on, you know, she gets her tarot cards read. There's all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, she has an emergency Um, house call with an Italian fortune teller. I don't know that many rich people. I know a few. And they tend to be a lot closer to the vest than Jennifer Coolidge's character. How did Tanya get her money? She inherited it from her billionaire. Some sort of San Franciscan old money family. She's the crazy one who got it all. So maybe that's, that's the differential. But most people who I know who have serious money don't talk about it. But she uses her money to buy serenity that she'd never gets. You know, her relationship to Portia is is an interesting indication of that. This woman's supposed to be some kind of assistant. But, you know, she's like, Portia's kind of an emotional support human. You know, stay close to me. Make sure you're close to me. Get back (laughs) to the island. This, that, and the other thing. It's like she might as well be a dog, you know. Uh, And I mean, it's not as if Tanya treats her with overt disrespect. And a lot of the time, as with the tarot card incident, she tries to make her a co-conspirator, but, you know, she uses money to buy comfort that she never quite achieves, hence going from one resort to the other. You don't hear too much about prenups anymore, although I'm sure they're rather common. Yeah, I looked it up. They're surprisingly common these days. And and the statistics are, I don't know, something like 40% of people have them. I'll look up the numbers and we'll put them in. The yeah, I think notes. because they a become... lot of people have them, but also people who got married without them regret it. I don't think I'm going to have that problem. So I think that we are ready for our rapid fire series, The Cringe Fire. Oh, boy. Are you ready? You made it. Yay. These are two women that you haven't let down, Glenn. We're we're at the end. 
So our first question, is there another show that you are binging right now? Not right now. I mean, my shameful secret is, well, it's not shameful that I don't watch a lot of television. It's just something that was never ingrained in me. I never got into series television because I always, I didn't want to get that invested in appointments. Mainly I watch shows, this is going to sound sickly name droppy, but I watch shows that people I know are involved in. So I like, just want to say, I know you watch shows that because we have friends who make shows. Yeah, I watch Billions. I watch Barry. I started watching Succession because a neighbor of mine was an assistant editor on it. She no longer works for Succession, but I got sucked in and I think it's a good show. And And one of its writers is now dating a writer that my wife works with. So there's a whole network of things. I'm going to have to watch Andor second season because my buddy Tom Bissell is starting to write on that. I don't know how I'll justify getting Disney Plus to do that, but I like Tom. I like his writing. I want to keep up with it. My wife and I watch Below Deck, but there's no new season of it yet. We're really into Captain Lee. What is something in the world or society that you find super cringy at the moment? Just about everything. Right now, Elon Musk and his uh, trying to be the main character on Twitter and, and being horrible and right wing and awful and you know, posting pictures of his guns on the site. That's bad. But I think the whole billionaire class is awful. They're making life worse every day. I think climate change is cringy. I think the war in Ukraine is cringy. I'm 63 years old, and I never thought the future that I envisioned as a third grader would be this awful. Okay, well, is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in the culture? It can be in any Yeah, medium. I want to see transgender sexuality better portrayed. It's badly portrayed, if portrayed at all. It's always given a kind of freak show aspect. I mean, we're at a point where representation is starting to rev up, so why not have sexuality rev up a little bit? Love it. Have some visionary transgender filmmakers doing it. Why not? We ask why not almost every episode. (laughs) Okay, final question. What's your favorite sex scene? I don't know. I mean, I often say the non-sex scene from Blow Up, the photo shoot between Varushka and David Hemmings, is a sex scene without being a sex scene and is incredibly erotic. And Another Antonioni film, by the way. Uh, and is both erotic and very, very funny because when they're done after the ah, 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 they both get up and like, okay, you know, and so it's kind of like a comment on on modern romance, uh, such as it was at that time and probably can be to to this day. I don't watch sex scenes for the titillation appeal as such, or if I want to watch a sex scene for titillation appeal, I know where to go. But I like stuff that goes further into the mind of the characters and it doesn't always necessarily have to involve actual sex like the scenes of kyle mclaughlin in the closet looking at isabella rossellini and blue Mm -hmm. velvet are incredibly disturbing but also incredibly incredibly real and really exposed and really interesting in their vulnerability of both the characters that's something you don't see too often that's what makes you know that film one of the things that makes that film special and what makes david lynch who doesn't really plan out these things saying i want i'm constructing an equation and this is going to be the result he just puts it out there you know so there's a lack of self-consciousness in it too that also makes it really makes it more credible than you might get from someone who you feel is deliberately constructing an equation to manipulate you it's it's almost like he's sharing a part of himself and he's not self-conscious about it even though it's a really disturbing part of himself 
Glenn, you've been an incredible guest. Thank you so much for oh. indulging us, for taking us through film history, for uh, watching this show, for deigning to watch television for us. And, uh, <laughs> I must seem like such a ridiculous snob. Yeah, I'll watch this show. No, that was the assignment. We said <laughs> we're not going to deign to discuss The Godfather without some credibility backup. I would be self-conscious about assigning TV until you mentioned below the deck. We're nothing at the cringe watchers, if not real. And Glenn, you are a forever friend of the show. We so appreciate you. Your knowledge is unsurpassed and we hope that we can chat again with you soon. Thank you. Anytime. Hope to see you both in person soon. Thank you to our guest, Glenn Kenny. You can find him on Twitter at Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, underscore, underscore, Kenny, K-E-N-N-Y. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our theme song, and you can find DL on SoundCloud at DA Dollars. And don't forget to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. If you subscribe today, you can get cool perks, including a shout out on our show. You can also show your love by rating and reviewing us anywhere podcasts are found. Follow us at Cringe Watchers on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, thank you for cringe watching with us. 